Over the past few years, I have asked you guys to give me a rating and review. And if you've done that, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. It's so helpful. But if you haven't, I get it. I kind of get it. Like, I'm asking you to go and click on this thing and then like, how do I do it? And then I have to come up with some kind of a review and I don't know what to say and I'll do it later, right? I, I get it. I've, I've kind of been there before. I, I know exactly how you feel. And so I'm not asking you to do that now, okay? What I'm asking you to do now is so easy. Anybody can do it and it literally takes like one second. Go into whatever you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on, they all have it, and just click on the subscribe button. Just subscribe. It takes one second. You don't have to be creative. You don't have to come up with a review and write it all out and you know be self-conscious about it. Just hit that subscribe button. That would be so, so, so impactful for me. And if you're enjoying this and getting a lot out of it, that would mean the world to me. It really would. And it's so easy. Anyone can do it. Like, let's literally stop listening right now. Stop listening. Go and do it. That's how much it means to me. Nobody ever asks you to leave their show and stop listening for anything. But I'm asking you to stop listening right now. Go and just quickly subscribe. Come right back and take a listen. That would mean the world to me. I would really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. And I really appreciate it. Thanks. Seller financing is a form of creative financing. Seller financing happens when you buy a property from a seller who owns it free and clear and they play the bank. In other words, you agree on a purchase price, for the sake of argument, a $100,000 purchase price, and you're going to pay them $10,000 a month or whatever. Maybe you buy it for one twenty, dollars so I can do easy public math here. You buy it for $120,000 and you pay them $10,000 a month for 12 months and then you own the property. Or a lot of times it's longer term than that. You know, you're going to buy it for $100,000 and you're going to divide that evenly over 36 months because you're going to pay them over three years or five years, whatever the case may be. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on the show today. I appreciate it. Uh, it is great to have you here. It's great to be bringing you another of my Q&As that I really think are going super well, actually. I'm getting a lot of good feedback. People are loving it. I'm seeing it in the downloads that you guys do like listening to these replays. I encourage you to go there and participate live as well. They happen on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. You can find me on Facebook, uh, just Start Real Estate on Facebook. You can go to my YouTube channel. You can go to my uh, LinkedIn uh, page, Twitter, all these places, right? Anywhere you can find me online, you can see that live and participate in it live with me on Wednesdays. But if you can't, here is the second best thing is to listen to the replay so you can hear the answers and get benefit of what other people are asking and what I'm answering and conversations we're having. And this one was fun. I We talked about uh, what to do as a college student, a 19-year-old college student, how to... Uh, start your investing career in that situation. We talked about that. Uh, we talked a lot about seller financing and gave some examples of what a good seller financing deal looks like. What are the risks involved? We talked about uh, direct mail. Someone is looking for multifamilies and they sent out 50 handwritten letters and they didn't get a response. Now what? What do they do? What do they do? What do they do wrong? What do they do right? What can they do to make it better? And also we talked about hiring your first assistant. And I told a story about my first assistant and how she stole my identity. So you're going to want to hear that. It's, it's painful for me, but hopefully interesting and helpful for you so you don't make the same mistakes. Guys, this is another good one. I'm excited that you're here. And uh, without any further delay, I give you my latest Q&A. 
All right, welcome. We are live again here on a Wednesday for our Wednesday Q&A, right? It's great that we're live Wednesday because we call this the Wednesday Q&A. And if we were live on Thursday, that wouldn't make any sense. So we are live here on Wednesday. Guys, I do this every single week, right? Wednesday, 7 o'clock Eastern time, 4 p.m. Pacific. I log on here. I am here at your disposal. I am free for you to use as a resource. You can ask me any questions you want about building your business, about scaling your business, about hiring, about anything you want, partnerships, whatever, raising money, anything that you are working on right now that's causing you some problems in your business, any challenges you're having. I am here as a resource to help you get through those things. I know how valuable that can be. I Early on, I didn't have a resource. I didn't have anyone who was going to help me without expecting something in return in terms of like, you know, like, for example, one time I, uh, I, I became, um, you know, kind of friendly friends with a guy in my in my local market. And he was supposedly going to help me do some stuff in real estate. Um, but in exchange, he wanted the contact information of all of my private lenders, which is ridiculous. If you know anything about raising private money, it's kind of a personal relationship, sort of a business arrangement. You know, people lend you money, but a lot of times they have to kind of know and like and trust you. But he wanted me just to hand over all of my personal um uh, all my private lenders, personal information. And it's like, not only is it not a good idea because they may not want to lend to this guy, but also he wanted me to hand over the personal contact information of my private lenders, which kind of is immoral and, and a little unethical on my part and certainly on his part. And so I realized early on, he was a little bit more of a vampire than he was a true helper. I thought he really wanted to help me and he was just doing it to be kind but he was trying to basically suck the blood out of my business and and take my private investors or my um yeah my private investors and and use them for his own purposes. So it was kind of an ugly lesson to learn, but I learned it. <clears throat> I didn't have anybody who just said, "Hey, I've built a million dollar." Matter of fact, I didn't know anybody who had built a million dollar business. First of all, everyone I knew, the most successful person I knew in real estate, had done like. 20, 25 deals the year before, which is great. There's nothing like that's a great business, huge business. Like I was in awe of that person. I couldn't believe how successful they were. But I didn't know anybody who truly had built a million dollar business from scratch and was running that business for several years, right? Who I could go to and just ask questions. And that is what I'm trying to provide for you guys here. I built a million dollar business. Uh, I am owner of more than one million dollar business. And I've seen a lot of businesses scale. I have coached hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of real estate investors over the last six, seven years. And I've seen companies that have scaled very fast and beyond what I am, like scaled past me. I, I taught them and they scaled past me. And I've seen businesses that haven't scaled or done as, as good a job of running their business. And I know what they did wrong. And it's all some of it's hindsight, right? You don't always know in the moment, but I've seen these things go really, really well. And I've seen others go not so well. And I know a lot of why they didn't go well, because it's easy after the fact to kind of like reverse engineer and, and kind of deconstruct what happened and what went wrong. And it's usually clear after the fact. And so I've been able to kind of see some of that stuff happen too. And I show up here on Wednesdays for you guys. And I'm not asking you for anything other than just to attend and ask questions. And that's all you have to do. It is free to you. It's a free resource. So you almost 
can't not be here in my, like I would be here if it was me and I was trying to build my business or if there was someone doing this live for free for me in an area that I wanted help, I would for sure be on. So if you're here live, like good on you, congratulations. I think you're taking things very seriously. Um, if you can't be here live and you're listening to this on replay on my podcast, Just Start Real Estate or somewhere else on social media, that's good too, right? It's second best, right? You can't ask questions when it's not live, but at least you can be a fly on the wall and hear what people are asking. So that's important. And I think you should do that. Okay. Uh, also, before we get started, speaking of free resources, I have created a really powerful free uh, resource for you guys. And it's about direct mail. I spent a lot of years um, trying to figure out experimenting with direct mail and I spent over a million dollars doing those experiments and trying to figure it out. And I was able to make a ton of money with direct mail over the last six, seven years. It's been responsible for several hundred deals. It's been responsible for the vast majority of my success in my real estate business. And I put all of that together in a short video course that is free to you. You can just download it and use it how you want. It's I give you everything from A to Z, how I run my direct mail campaigns, um, the kind of uh, marketing pieces that I use. I give you the marketing piece that I use that's been the most successful for me. And I break it all down from A to Z so you can start running your direct mail campaigns based off of what I'm showing you in these videos. It's very quick to consume, very straightforward, no fluff, no, no, no BS. It's just right to business. I give you the goods and then you're done. So you can implement this stuff right away. And you can get it by going to mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail. I've got it on the screen right now. If you're watching this, it's mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail. So go and check that out on my website. Like I said, it's a free resource, guys. Like you download it, you watch it or don't like, I guess it, it's up to you. I don't know why you would download it and not watch it, but it's free. I understand if I said it's $5,000 and by the way, if it was $5,000, it's well worth it because I guarantee it's worth way more than that in revenue. We're in the real estate business where profits from a single deal is usually in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. And so a $5,000 price point for a, a course that teaches you how to make tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars per transaction is pretty reasonable, but it's not $5,000. It's not $1,000. It's $0. It's free for you. And I promise you, if I was going to charge $5,000, you would get the same course. I put that level of effort into it. So go and grab that for free and start building your direct mail marketing channel out. And so you can grow your business. Okay. That being said, let's dive into today's questions. People send these to me all different ways, email, direct mail. Uh, I have phone conversations sometimes where people ask me these questions and I just, I incorporate them into this live if I think it's a good question or something that other people would benefit from. And so let's do that now. Let's, let's start going through these questions and see what we can, we can come up with. Okay. First question I got sent to me, uh, can you give me some tips on investing in real estate as a 19-year-old? <clears throat> yeah, the, the the tips I would give you as a 19-year-old are very similar to what I would give you at any age. You don't have to be, you know, it's not specific to 19-year-olds. But I recently interviewed someone on my podcast. I don't think it's gone live yet. Or maybe as of this recording, when this goes out, it will have been live. But um, her name was Dominique, Dominique Gunderson, Dominique Gunderson. I interviewed her. At 19, specifically the, the age you're asking about, she did her first wholesale deal in Los Angeles. 
and highly, highly competitive market. She had already got herself started, figured out what she had to do, found a deal and wholesaled it and made a ton of money by 19. She's 24 now and she's flipping in one state, lives in another. She's moved across the country. Like just amazing, right? So don't let your age trip you up too badly. You can do anything you want at 19. Now you're a college student. So obviously there's some time being taken there. What I really, really suggest that you do is start learning right now. If you haven't yet, start consuming content like this. Um, maybe even find a really, really great course where you can you can learn a little bit more. But I would say at 19, as a college student, you don't really have a, maybe all the time in the world to build your business. I might try to find someone who's already doing what you want to do in your market or someplace that you know of or somebody you know of and shadow them. Ask them if you can work for them for free and learn the business. That's really what Dominique did too. She just started before 19. I think she was like 17. And she went to work for a broker just so she could learn the real estate business from that side of it. And then she went out on her own and started doing her own thing at 19. But I would try to shadow or intern or something for a real estate investor who has a business that you admire. Someone who's doing what you want to do. Get on the inside of their business and work for them for free and try to figure things out. I think interning or being an apprentice or whatever you want to call it is a vastly underutilized and um, underestimated path to success. Too many people want to go straight for the gold. And I get that. I'm impatient and I love going straight for the gold. And it's usually um, that would be my suggestion. If you are not a college student, I probably would say still interning for a short time would be great. But I would say you should be on a more direct path right to what you want. But I want you to focus on getting through college and, and getting that done and, and having that achievement. Not necessarily because I think college is the end all be all, but you're in it, you started it. I'm assuming maybe your parents are paying for it, maybe not, somebody's paying for it. And so we wanna make sure we don't waste that money in time, but finish what you're doing there. But in the meantime, get in the learning mode and apprentice or intern for someone and get busy learning the business from the inside of a successful business. That, that's what I would suggest to you. Um, most people intuitively think or they go on the internet and they hear this and so they think it's what they need to do and they um, start wholesaling. I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I don't know that wholesaling is necessarily the easiest path to start, but Think about what you want. What is your end game? At 19, maybe you don't know. But too many times I hear people say, I want to be, um, I want to be a, a buy hold investor. I want to buy single family properties. I want to rent them out. I want to be a landlord. I want to get that, you know, that um, passive income. And then so they go for wholesaling first, and then they kind of start figuring out wholesaling, and then they start flipping, and then they go to what they want. I never understand this zigzag path to your goal. If you want to be a buy and hold investor and that's what you want to do, you want passive income, you want rentals, you want to build a portfolio, I say you start with that. Go straight to that. So as it relates to like going straight for what you want, once you're ready to go all in and you're maybe done with college, go all in on what you want. If you want to be a wholesaler, go all in on wholesaling. That's fine. That's what I do. If you want to be a flipper, go all in on flipping. Don't take some crazy convoluted zigzag path. Go straight to what you want. Um, but I would right now try to apprentice with someone who is doing that thing. Try to intern with someone who's in the business you want to be in and just, you know, learn, just learn, get in that learning phase for a year or two and then go out there and, and, and attack it and go for it. But don't feel like you can't 
because of your age. Age is just a number, guys. Whether you're old or young, it, it just doesn't matter. I Like I said, I interviewed uh, Dominique. She was 19 and she was already figuring things out and starting to crush. Like she was already doing it. And I know plenty of people that are in their 60s and 70s and they're running successful businesses and they started it late in life. So it's never too late. It's never too early. Now's the time. So go, go for it. Okay, <clears throat> next question. Would you please explain seller financing and give an example of what a good deal looks like and also what are the risks involved? So seller financing is part, it's under the umbrella of creative financing, right? Sometimes people say seller financing and they mean creative financing and vice versa. Seller financing is a form of creative financing. So if you want to know about, and you're asking about seller financing, so I'm not going to assume that you're asking anything other than seller financing. Seller financing happens when you buy a property from a seller who owns it free and clear and they play the bank. In other words, you agree on a purchase price for the sake of argument, a hundred thousand dollar purchase price, and you're gonna pay them, you know, ten thousand dollars a month or whatever, or maybe you buy it for one twenty. So I can do easy public math here. You buy it for hundred twenty thousand and you pay them ten thousand dollars a month for twelve months, and then you own the property. Or a lot of times it's longer term than that. You know, you're gonna buy it for a hundred thousand and you're gonna divide that evenly over um, 36 months because you're gonna pay them over three years or five years, whatever the case may be. A lot of times, and by the way, a good um, what does a good deal look like? A good deal looks like a win-win. Just like every other deal. They're all the same, right? The seller has to get what they want. You have to get what you want. And a lot of times what you can do, what, what's great about seller financing is you don't need to borrow the money at some sort of a, a higher interest rate to, to purchase. You might just have to borrow money to do the renovation because the renovation budget is not going to be included. The seller is not going to finance your renovation, renovation in most cases. So you're going to have to come up with the renovation money. But a lot of times the strategy that people try to try to use is they say to the seller, like, you know, what, what, how much do you want for the house? And, you know, maybe that maybe the buyer, the investor was willing to pay a hundred and the seller says, well, I really want 125. And, and so you agree to 125 and maybe you can just make the, you can, um, you can amortize that out over more years. So, um, you can keep your obligations low so that it makes sense for you. And a lot of times the goal is to not pay interest. And so sometimes when you're talking to the seller, it's like, well, what if we gave you what you wanted over five years? You know, the payments would be X. Does that make sense for you? Does Are those payments, does that make sense, that income for you every month? And you don't even bring up an interest rate. And sometimes it isn't a thing. Sometimes you can go seller financing terms and it's like, you know, $200,000 over 60 months divided equally, and that's what you pay them. So you, in, in, in essence, you're getting a, a zero interest loan from the seller. And and that's fine with them. I mean, it's it, they're getting what they want. They're getting the price that they want. And a lot of times with seller financing, one of the benefits is you can overpay a little bit. And so you can go closer or all the way up to what the seller wants for their house, give them what they want, but you just spread the payments over more years and you don't you don't get charged interest. And so it can be a win-win. You're getting an interest-free loan spread out over a number of years. So it lowers your obligation monthly. And so it makes a, makes a little more sense for you. And it makes total sense for them because they're getting what they want from the house. Um, a good deal looks like this. You agree on a price. You amortize that out over five or 10 years. No interest no down payment. Like that's, that would be a perfect ideal situation. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
a perfect ideal situation for you as the investor. And for the seller, it can be too, because they're getting the price that they want. Now, if they're not getting the price that they want exactly, <clears throat> if they're not getting exactly the price they want, they may want a down payment, something, you know, money in hand, $10,000 down, $20,000, whatever it is, right? So they, might, they might, might want some money down to try to, you know, get past whatever they're dealing with that they're selling the house for. And a lot of times they have to move and they have costs and maybe they have bills that they're trying to take care of. <clears throat> and so putting money down is is a lot of times what's going to be needed. A lot, a lot of times you're not going to get away without putting money down, but you might be able to buy a house with out having to go to a private lender or a hard money lender or a bank. So the seller is financing it directly, right? It makes it very, very easy. And you can amortize it out over five or 10 years. And a lot of times negotiate no interest. As long as the payments that they're getting and the price that they're getting is acceptable to them, a lot of times that will be sufficient. And if you can do a no down payment, that's great, right? The risks involved are very few, if any, honestly. The, the biggest risk is really being... Um, is taken by the seller because they're the ones who are extending the the loan, right? The financing, like they're the ones financing it. So if you default, then they got an issue. They have to take the house back and they may have to foreclose and all that stuff. So I think they, they bear the brunt of the risk. For you, the risks are absolutely no different than they would be if you borrowed the money and didn't do seller financing. If you borrowed it from a private money lender, a hard money lender, the bank, it's the exact same risk. So I don't think there's any inherent risks to the investor with seller financing. But there is a little bit of risk on the side of the seller because most sellers who do seller financing, they're not used. They're not used to financing anything. They're not a bank. They don't have that that background. And so to them, it would probably be a colossal, colossal problem, pain in the butt if you didn't pay your um, your mortgage payments or your your loan payments to them. It would be a real problem. And they'd have to take it back. And then they are in the same problem they were before they met you is they have this house that they don't want. And so that's really, really bad. So you don't want to take on these kinds of seller financing deals if you don't feel 100% confident in your ability to perform. So I'd say the biggest risk is with the seller. But a great seller finance deal is um, uh, a price that is agreeable to you and the seller amortized out over five to 10 years, at least with no down payment. That That's the best, right? No interest. That's the best scenario. It's an ideal situation. Okay. <clears throat> Next question. Looking for my first duplex to house hack. I recently sent out 50 handwritten direct mail letters to multifamily owners in town. I did not hear back from any thoughts. <laughs> I did not hear back from any period thoughts, question mark. Let me read that properly. Um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, a direct mail is kind of uh, it's kind of a um, specialty for me. Uh, clearly, I created a course, and so I, I think I know something about direct mail. And there's a few thoughts here. Number one, if I sent out direct mail to someone and I didn't hear back the first time, I wouldn't. Not only would I not be surprised, I'd sort of be blown away if I did hear back the first time. And I know you didn't send out one, you sent out 50. I get that. 50 is a very low number in direct mail. I wouldn't like freak out. The The thought here is, or the 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 the, the process is you keep doing it. Um, you know, there's a lot of different people and studies out there that will tell you how many times a person needs to see something before they react, how many touches you, they call them touches in, in marketing, right? Like how many times do they have to see something from you before they respond to it. And it it's usually in the neighborhood of like six to 10 times. Like there's, it's a lot. 
Um, I'm not necessarily a big fan of like how many times does a person have to receive your direct mail before they'll call you. I, I think they'll call you the first time if they really want to, but I would. I, I don't even think about the first mailing as being a test of whether or not it works. I would say those 50 letters need to go out five to 10 more times easily before I would start being too worried. Now, you didn't hear back from any of them. I get that. It's a little bit of a concern for you. Two things. I don't know that handwritten is necessarily that big of a deal personally. Um, it's my own opinion. And I know that there are people who would probably disagree with me. I have never handwritten a letter or a postcard in my life, yet somehow I've managed to build a million dollar business. So it's not required. Um, and I would also say send out more. Like I would pull a list. Uh, I don't know where you got these 50. If you pulled a list or if you drove around and, and kind of um, driving for dollars, found 50. But I would send, not only would I send those 50 um, a, a letter, it doesn't have to be handwritten, but if it is, whatever, if you want to handwrite them, I would send them that letter once a month for six months before I even batted an eye of whether or not they were interested. Like I would keep doing it, but I would try to build that list up to in the hundreds or several hundreds or thousands if there's that many multifamily. Because I know you're going for multifamily, so that reduces the pool of, of available properties to send to. I get that. And you may be in a small market. I don't know. But I would find all of the multifamily properties and send a letter or a postcard to all of them. And the 50 that you found, keep sending it. Keep Don't even worry about you didn't hear back. It's totally fine. Most people don't respond to those types of things the first time. So I would keep sending them. And then on top of that, and let's just say for a minute, you only there's only 50 that you that you even want. So you don't want a list of 100 or 200 or 10,000. You just only want these 50. That's fine. Keep sending them once a month. Send them a letter or a postcard. But I would also skip trace those because there's only 50. That's easy. I would skip trace those and I would start calling them too. You'll get them eventually. If you call them and and send them mail and maybe even email them, like when you skip trace them, get the email address. And I would call them, maybe even text them, email them and send them a direct mail. Okay. Sounds like a lot. But trust me, you'll get them in one of those ways if they're if they want to be gotten right. If they don't want to sell their property, they're probably not going to call you. In fact, they may call you to say, "Quit contacting me." I got a text message, I got an email, you left a phone message, and I've gotten direct mail from you for the last four months. Like, don't do this anymore. I'm not selling. And that's sometimes that's especially with fifty. That's as good as anything because at least you know they're not interested and you can stop wasting time on that. Um, but if you do that, send them mail once a month, call them and, and try to get them on the phone, maybe email them and see if you can get them that way. And also maybe even text them. I don't know if I would do them all right out of the gate. That's a little, even for me, that's a little aggressive, but I would for sure mail them and I would call them. Those are the two things I would do right away. And if I couldn't get them that way, I would probably start with the text and email after maybe two or three months if no one's calling me back or if I'm not getting any response from the mail, that's what I would do. But there's a lot of things you can do. And if, if like I said, if those 50 are super targeted and you really want those 50 only, then you got to go you got to go a little deeper. You got to get a little bit more um, resourceful with how you're reaching out to them. And I think a phone call is the most logical second step after mailing them. So, and you can always use the phone call as, uh, a, a, you know, the excuse of calling them other than you want to buy their house is, hey, I sent you uh, something in the mail. I sent you a letter. I didn't hear back from you. I just want to call and see if you've gotten it and if you had a chance to read it and if you were interested. So you have a perfect reason to call them. It doesn't have to be like, oh, 
do you want to sell your like say hey i just i'm reaching out my name is mike i i sent you a letter and i didn't hear back from you so i'm just curious if you got it and if you've had a chance to look at it and you can have start building that rapport in that conversation so that's what i would do call them next that would be the next logical thing okay <clears throat> let's do the next one here this may be the last one all right question i am struggling let's see i'm struggling to find an assistant that i can work with effectively did you have to go through several be finding, before finding someone good? Is it better to fire sooner rather than later? So two questions here. Um, did I have to go through several to find a good one? And is it better to soon uh, fire sooner than later? It's always better to fire sooner than later if you really think that the person needs to be fired. The first assistant that I ever hired... Um, she responded to um, a job posting that I put out. I, it might have been on Craigslist or it might have been Indeed. I can't remember one of the two, but she responded. Her resume was outstanding. When I interviewed her, she interviewed outstanding. I was so pumped to hire her. She was exactly what I wanted. She had the exact experience I wanted. She had the exact attitude I wanted. And I was as happy as could be. I'm like, this person is going to multiply my business and it's going to be great. Um, started working with her. Obviously, I'm not going to mention her name or anything specific, but started working with her and everything seemed good at first, but there were some weird um, red flags that came up and I sort of ignored him at first thinking, you know, maybe I'm, maybe it's me. Like I, I, I get it. Sometimes things can hit me weird and, and that's fine. But it became apparent uh, over time that she was operating in a kind of a shady way. She had some shady contacts. She was starting to recommend that I do things in a shady way. And it was kind of becoming apparent to me that she wasn't, a wholesome person. She was she wasn't an honest, um, moral person, and so I decided I was going to have to fire her. Now, I don't remember the exact timeline, but I want to say she worked for me for maybe six months uh, before I realized it was time to let her go. And when I went to fire her, it was. When I say drama, I mean like almost like Jerry Springer drama. She flipped out. She started crying. She started begging me not to fire her. And and I, I held firm, and it, but it was crazy rough. She was an older lady. So it was a little bit, you know, weird. She was crying and it was just, it was awkward, uncomfortable at the, at the least. And, um, but I held firm. But unfortunately, because of the way that I'm built, I tend to trust quickly. And so she had access to, to Google folders. She, I had given her my social security number to help me with some things that I needed done. I mean, stuff that you would normally let an assistant do. I just didn't, I didn't have her around long enough to be giving her that kind of sensitive information, but I did. And so I had to get her out of the Google drives and, you know, make sure that I was tr trying to like tie up all the loose ends, but I had forgotten that I gave her my social security number and worse my daughter, who was doing real estate with me at the time, I she got her social security number too. And so uh, she once I let her go, um, 
she utilized our social security numbers, stole our, I, my daughter specifically, stole her identity, started charging some things. So I started looking into it more and realized that she had gone to jail before I hired her. Um, and she had just gotten out for writing bad checks and counterfeit stuff and some sort of like petty theft stuff. <laughs> like she was a criminal basically. And I didn't do background checks, right? That's sort of my long story where I'm going here. She seemed great. And I just used my instincts to hire her. She had a good background, good resume. Um, but she also had a criminal background and I didn't do a background check. I just hired her, started giving her responsibilities. Shortly thereafter, gave her my, my social security number. She had my daughter's social security number. And I gave all this stuff to someone who had gone to jail for counterfeiting and stealing identities. She had, she had stole other people's identities. And so we had to take care of all that kind of stuff and deal with the stolen identity and, and all that crap. And it was a disaster. I probably should have fired her slightly sooner, but really the big mistake was I didn't do a background check. And the reason I didn't do a background check, and this is like, this is a little bit of excuse making, I get it, but she was an older lady. I mean, she just, I just, she seemed like a sweet old lady. And, you know, the fact of the matter is she had recently um, gotten out of jail for, you know, counterfeit and stolen identity and this kind of stuff. Um, I think she was actually even like counterfeiting bills, like making fake money. And I don't know, I, I'm I'm not into that world, so I don't really know the terminology, but she had done some shady crap and I hired her and she, I let her get into my world. I gave her sensitive information and she made me pay for it a little bit. And, and by the way, I was giving her um, the responsibility of picking up rent from someone who a renter that I had who didn't have a bank account and whatever, they were just financially kind of a disaster. So she would go there and pick up the rent and bring it to me um, just to save me time. And she did that a few months in a row. But the, when I fired her, like, the next day or two days later was when the rent was due and she went there and picked it up and said she was picking it up for me and took, you know, like 700 bucks and just skipped away with it. My renter said, Hey, we paid her. We didn't know you. We didn't tell, I didn't tell them that I fired her. Didn't think to. And so they gave her the money cause they had done it two months prior. Right. Not really their fault. And so she got away with that too. So it was kind of a mess. It was kind of a nightmare for a few months. Um, and so, do background checks, even if there's just seem like a sweet old lady, like do a background check because you just never know. I would have never hired her. I would have seen the criminal record. And so um, that was assistant number one, total crash and burn. Hired my second assistant. Um, she was a recommendation from a friend at the time. And she started working with me and it, it's she's still with me. It's great. She's great. Uh, we work well together. Um, you know, it, it takes time to really, so for someone who, who's an assistant, who gets into your world as an investor or a business person, especially if you have more than one thing going on. And I had way more than one thing, and I still do way more than one thing going on. And so it takes time. So you can't you can't fire super fast because maybe somebody doesn't get it or, or they're struggling and they make a mistake. You have to give them time. It, I would say... Knowing what I know now from me hiring and from talking to other um, entrepreneurs who, are at hire, who have hired, it probably takes six months to a year for everyone to be comfortable and kind of hitting on all cylinders, especially when you have a lot of 
businesses or a lot of things that you're doing, it takes time. You have to be patient, right? So you can't fire someone right away because they don't intuitively and instinctively know what you're thinking and understand all your business equally, right? They just won't. So it takes time. I would say six months to a year, as long as you see progress and effort and enthusiasm and all that kind of stuff. And I would always rather, and you should too, I think, I would rather somebody make an aggressive mistake than a passive mistake. And by that, I mean, I would rather see them see what has to be done, take action, make decisions, move the ball down the field. And if they make a mistake, we course correct and we move on rather than someone sit back waiting for me to tell them everything and something goes wrong because they saw it, but they were too afraid to do anything without talking to me first. And so, you know, this thing went wrong, but they didn't want to do anything because they just, ah, they don't want to, they don't want to mess anything up. Uh, you know, like, I don't want that. I want someone who sees it and says, yeah, I took action. It, it didn't go well. I, I made a mistake and this is what I did, but I saw it. This is why I took the action I took and this is what I did wrong and this is how I fi I'll fix it and won't do it again, right? I would rather somebody make a decision that's wrong than make no decision and, and have issues arise. So give them time, uh, empower them and encourage them to make decisions uh, on your behalf, logical decisions, right? Because if you hire somebody and you train them, the only way they can do anything is to check with you first. That's not helpful. That's not really an assistant. That's just a robot. That's someone who does something after they ask. So you have to make all the decisions. You have to be involved in everything. Like that's no good. That is not a good assistant. You need, and that's not good for you as a, as a boss or an owner or whatever you want to call yourself, a manager, whatever. You're not doing a good job if you make them come to you for every little thing. So they have to be empowered. You have to back them up. You have to be understanding when things go wrong. And that's just part of it. But six months to a year, I think you can be hitting on all cylinders. Things can be great. It's when you people fire too, too quickly, <clears throat> they don't give people a chance to acclimate. I think you only fire quickly when you can see they just don't have it. They're just not in the right seat. They're not in the right position. They're not going to work for you. It just doesn't work and you don't want it to work. Then you need to let them go. You can't just wait for them to magically become a different person. But if you guys mesh and they seem to be interested and they're uh, you know, attacking the, the situation and the job and they're trying to get better and you're seeing progress, I say um, keep them around and, and let it let it go for six months to a year and see how it works. But if you get red flags, then you need to really evaluate if it's time to go. So you'll know you'll 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 be able to tell if it's if it's like a learning uh, hurdle or if it's just incompetence or in my case, you know, um, lack of ethics. <laughs> Someone who's just a bad person who needs a background check to know that they're a criminal, like do a background check for sure. Uh, and I'm also a big fan of personality assessments, the DISC, the Colby. There's something called the culture index. I, I want to know if that person is wired in a way that I think my assistant should be. And so I want someone who, with, for me, with a high level of detail and someone who, um, you know, isn't insanely patient. And that sounds crazy that you want someone who isn't patient. Patience, they say patience is a virtue. Uh, in business, for me, I don't think it is. I think someone who wants things to move, like keep going at a fast pace. That's who I want to work with me. But I need someone who's detail oriented. And that that's important for me because I'm not detail oriented. And so I need someone who's detail oriented, but also wants to get things done. That's that's a perfect assistant for me. Um, so uh, that's what I think about that. Guys, if you have questions, definitely show up here live at seven o'clock on uh, Eastern and 4 p.m. Pacific on Wednesdays. I'm here for you. If not, you can listen to the replay on Just Start Real Estate, my podcast, or you can go to my social media. Uh, for most of my social media, you can find me at Mike S. Simmons, Mike S. 
Simmons, and, and you can watch the replay there. Uh, also, if you want to learn about direct mail, if you want to get better at it and you want that to be part of your marketing strategy, go to my website, MikeSimmons.com and click on the link, or you can just type in MikeSimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail and get that free video course, get yourself straightened out with direct mail. It can be a crazy profitable marketing channel for you. And it should be, it has made more money. That channel has made more money for me. And literally every every investor, real estate investor I know who is highly successful will tell you direct mail has been their best marketing channel to date. So go and check that out, guys. It's totally free. Download it, get it, use it, and turn your business into the money-making machine it should be. All right, guys, until next time, that was our Q&A. I'll see you next time. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.